Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you are enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying and raising and investing capital for MedTech startups. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is the cloud for medical device makers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device-to-cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE mark standards. Built on 40-plus years of collective experience developing compliance systems in the medical device industry, the company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. In this episode, our guest, Ashley Mooneyham from Superior Medical Experts and I discuss the world of grants in the United States, the SBIR and STTR grant mechanisms, America's Seed Fund, the mechanics of where the money can go if you get grant funding, the NIH versus NSF grant opportunities, phase one versus phase two, the application process for both, what you can do with the money in each stage, tips and pitfalls when putting together your application, success rates, budget exemptions, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Ashley Mooneyham. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Okay, Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah. So before we we jump into um, the, the the wonderful world of grants, can you just give the, the listeners an idea of, of who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Ashley Mooneyham, and I am the president and director of grants at Superior Medical Experts, and we are a medical writing and research support firm. So for the purposes of this conversation, I'll mostly be talking about our ability to comprehensively help small businesses apply for grant applications to fund their ideas And by comprehensive, I mean we truly take on everything full service from company registrations all the way through drafting every document and submitting the grant on your behalf. Okay, great. And and so I'm curious, how does how does one get into the business of of grant writing? Um, You know, what's even going further back, you know, education? Have you worked other places? You know, how did you how did you get to here? Of course. (laughs) Yeah. Happy to answer that. So I got my PhD in cancer biology from the University of Minnesota because I was always really passionate about translational science. So science that actually goes from bench to bedside, they like to say. But during my PhD studies at the actual bench, I really felt like my research was so far away from impacting human health. So after I wrapped up my PhD, I was really seeking job opportunities that allowed me to do what I always wanted to do which is help science impact human health. And that's how I got into the director of grants role at Superior Medical Experts, where I got to interact with a lot of small businesses that had really high impact, highly innovative ideas, and help them get that seed funding to move their technology forward. And one of the first grants that I ever worked on ended up being used in patients. (laughs) So it's really rewarding to see that fast translation of a scientific idea to an actual clinical impact. 
And that's what I like most about grant applications. You're really speaking to the promise of science. Oh, that's fantastic. So um, it's, it's I, I just remembered this. So I actually had uh, Keith and Kevin Kalmus on. Um, they'll be released a few episodes ahead of you. Uh, and we, we talked about you on the podcast, um, in a good way, okay. right? It was, it was more or less talking about, <laughs> it was, it was talking about how, as a founder of a company, do you realize that maybe you're not the best person to be leading the company? So, um, and that was, I guess, you know, alluding to the fact that, that you're also the president of the company as well. Um, so, so anyways, I wanted to share that real quick, just in case you don't get a chance to, to check right. out their, their episode of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I um, so director of grants to president. Yeah. So that's been really fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when was that? So I became president of the company at the beginning of 2021. So after a couple of years at the company, Keith and Kevin were ready to move on to their next venture, as I'm sure that you know, they have a lot going on. <laughs> and I was really excited yeah. to get more involved with Superior Medical Experts because the work is really feels like it was tailored to me and things that I enjoy doing. It's a lot of scientific communication and organization personnel management, client conversations, all things that I really enjoy doing. So it's, I'm happy to be only more involved. Okay, great. Um, so let's start with the basics of grants. I don't know, I don't know where maybe you want to start. I'll, I'll kind of let you take the lead here. My, my initial question was SBIR phase one, phase two grants, um, just because those are very common in the med tech space. But, but if you want to start somewhere else and kind of tie it in there, you know, take it from here. <laughs> Sounds great. No, that's a good question. And it's a big question. So just to start all the way from the beginning, the grant mechanism that we primarily work with small businesses in is the SBIR and STTR grant mechanism. That stands for Small Business Innovation Research and Small Business Technology Transfer. The biggest difference between the two is whether or not the small business applicant is working with a nonprofit research institution in a large way. So if you're working with a nonprofit research institution like a university or a hospital, or maybe you are an academic professor, a surgeon or a clinician that came up with an innovative idea and you want to use your nonprofit resources, then the STTR mechanism is going to be better for you it's a longer phase one project period. So it's one year instead of six months that you would get with SBIR to really allow for that collaboration. And also it has less restrictive budget and employment requirements so that there's more flexibility between which team members and which resources are small business versus nonprofit. So it's really friendly in that collaborative way and it allows technology transfer is really the goal of that mechanism. Um, but I would say the majority of our small business clients would go for the SBIR mechanism. That's better if you're a small business applicant and you might be working with contract research organizations or other fee-for-service organizations rather than a university or a hospital um, who can really contract out work that you delegate to them and are very specified in delegating. So they're not really having a creative decision-making role in the, pro in the project. Um, so SBIR allows more of the budget to stay with the small business, which is ideal. You're actually restricted. You can only subcontract out 33%, but that's intentional. We want to see most of the research effort with the small business. And then also the applicant must be a small business applicant. And then when I say phase one versus phase two grants, those are the 
main grant project periods. So phase one is where most people start. It's really for that feasibility and proof of concept work. You genuinely could come into a phase one grant with little more than a napkin sketch and a good, well-founded idea, and you'd be eligible to apply. They don't require preliminary data in a traditional sense, like an academic grant. Preliminary data I like to think of as anything that speaks to sweat equity that you've put in. So it could be literature research, it could be customer discovery, it could be the fact that you've started provisional patents for the idea, um, maybe some CAD drawings of the overall vision. And we, we usually try to milk as much as we can from our clients of what they've done so far so that we can present them as having put in that sweat equity and be a competitive applicant for phase one funding, which is generally between 275 all the way up to $500,000 for a six to 12 month proof of concept project. So SBIR and STTR grants really like to consider themselves America's seed fund. They're funding these really early stage ideas, maybe before you would even have the opportunity to get investor interest. And what's great is it's all non-dilutive. So it's you can do what you want with the money. You can really take the idea where you want it to go. You can define what you're doing and define who your end users are, which is really fantastic. Okay, so so a couple questions. You mentioned the STTR uh, had a longer phase one of a year. SBIR had it was it six months or six was it months. six months to a year? Okay, six, six months. months. Mm -hmm. And okay, and and so the um, the thirty three percent of the SBIR grant can go to subcontractors. So. I, right. So, so my question is this is for someone who's trying to do a proof of concept where that study could be, you know, $250,000 in itself, if it's an animal study, how do you, how do you kind of structure that, um, in a grant process, knowing that half of it might have to go to, um, an animal lab or an animal facility. Is that, is that something that's doable within there? Or do you just have to scale the project down? Can you kind of walk through the mechanics of that? That's a really good question. And there are a couple answers to that. So one being, I like to say the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation, those are two institutes that we mostly apply to with our healthcare innovation startup clients. So if your innovation is healthcare focused, it's going to be a really good candidate for the NIH. If it's more technology or engineering focused, it'd be a good candidate for NSF. Some clients can apply for both, focus on the engineering components of what they're doing at NSF and focus on the clinical components of what they're doing at NIH. Um, but the important thing there is they like to invest in good science. So they don't necessarily want to see a cheap project, the fact that your project is cheap isn't going to give you a competitive ed edge. Um, and to that end, the National Institutes of Health actually allows budget exemptions over the standard cap. So animal studies would be a big budget exemption more often than not. And my company can help you look for those and see which ones that you qualify for. But that's how you can get up to $500,000 in a phase one depending on the subject matter of your research in the institute within the National Institutes of Health that you'd be applying to. They all have their own institutional budget caps. The other answer to that question is if you cannot fit the animal study that you want into the budget, even with the budget cap, then we do want to think about scaling back that study because often people forget phase one is proof of concept. 
proof of concept doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have statistically significant efficacy measurements compared to a standard of care or a competitor. Proof of concept is really a few animals at most proving out that what you intend to do can work basic mechanistically, how you expect it to work, and also that it's safe by some gross observation or maybe histology, that type of thing in an animal study. Where you really want to do the research is in a phase two grant, which we haven't really talked about yet, but phase two is larger. So by rule of thumb, it's two years and $2 million for research and development ahead of commercialization. And again, this is non-dilutive grant money. So 2 million non-dilutive funds for you to perform the bigger research and development studies after proof of concept has been proven. And that's where we really see clients go into GLP animal studies that are large and controlled, maybe even a clinical trial, depending on the research area that you're in, or simply further like iterative optimization with higher testing standards and performance standards based on benchtop studies or models. Um, so that's a really important delineation is constantly when you think about your research project, you have to make sure that it stays within the scope of phase one as a phase one applicant, because one of the most common criticisms is that you're being too ambitious. And you might not even feel like you're being too ambitious, but they really see overly ambitious work as too risky to award a grant to, because you're unlikely to meet those milestones that you set forth. Okay. Um, real quick budget exemptions. You mentioned the, the, the preclinical studies we discussed. What, what are some other things that would qualify under that budget exemption? Yeah, great question. So preclinical studies are often a budget exemption, but also they offer budget exemptions for research areas of interest. So even if you're just happen to be studying something or your innovation happens to be something that they particularly want to fund to increase their portfolio, um, that might be a budget exemption in itself. So even things like telehealth, especially in the age of COVID, telehealth and digital health end up being huge budget exemption opportunities for institutes that want to expand research into that area, um, especially to get healthcare specialists to rural areas or underserved areas. That tends to be a big one lately. Um, but each institute has their own area of focus per grant cycle that they may want to particularly invest in. And to incentivize that, they would allow a budget exemption to make sure that the applicant companies can do what they want to do with the grant funds. Okay, great. And, and I think too, you know, you mentioned statistically um, uh, relevant information, that, that kind of thing. I think that that's actually really important coming from the service provider side. I'm not sure, um, a lot of us truly understand that sometimes when startups come to us and say, Hey, we need a budget for a preclinical study. And we say, well, you need this many animals, um, because this is how we're going to get something that can go to the next step. And, and a lot of times we used to hear that, that, hey, well, actually we don't need that many. We just need a few. And, um, but, but that's to help to get to that phase two. So the NIH and the NSF in this case, are they pretty understanding of that? If you, if you get your phase one, uh, it's only a few, maybe a few statistical endpoints. Um, maybe they're not really relevant. Their understanding of that in that phase two process as well. Is that right? 
So in phase two, you would really want, the idea of phase two is to bring you to the point of what they would consider commercialization as much as possible. And commercialization could be okay. acquisition. Commercialization could be a large clinical trial study that you wouldn't be able to fund with $2 million in grant funding. Um, and because they want to bring you to the point of commercialization, and again, it could be like a 510k submission. There are lots of definitions of that. They do want to see the research product of a phase two to be approaching statistically significant efficacy claims that you can make um, so that you can submit your 510k, so that you can go to clinical trials, so that you can be acquired, so that you could hit the market. Um, so you do want to think bigger and be a lot more careful about setting goals for yourself that will allow you to move forward in a phase two when it comes to proving out the efficacy of your device, especially in comparison to standards right now. Okay. In, in, in phase two, um, two years up to $2 million, if it, if it does involve a clinical trial, clinical trials are oftentimes really hard to um, budget for and mm -hmm. estimate for. Right. So um, is there an ability to partner, like, let's say you get the grant, you had allocated just in this example, a million dollars towards the clinical trial, the clinical trial is going to end up costing 1.3 million by the time you run it. Is there an ability to partner with dilutive capital in these scenarios for those startup companies? Or, or, or is that, is that kind of like, no, you can't mix the government or the, the non-dilutive and dilutive funding? Yeah. So in a phase two, one thing I want to quickly mention is $2 million is the rule of thumb, the standard cap, but you actually can also get budget exemptions in a phase two scenario up to $3 million, depending on the institute. So there is an opportunity for up to $3 million for which some clinical studies can be achieved. Of course, not all of them, depending on what you're trying to do. And they are understanding if the grant is only going to cover a portion of the clinical trial costs, depending on what you need to do. My advice would be, if you are going to submit a phase two application, the most competitive applicants tend to tell a full story, start to finish, encapsulated within that budget and timeline. So if there's anything you can think of as a company that would fit in a two million two-year project period, I would recommend applying with that. But if absolutely the only next step that your company can logically take is a large-scale clinical study, then you can write a grant application for that. And you would simply need to be clear that this grant application is only covering a portion of the costs. And then to de-risk that to the government, you would disclose, we do have other avenues of funding secured so that if this grant is awarded, we can move forward. You don't want that to seem like a roadblock. Otherwise, you're unlikely to get the award because they know it's not going to cover your full costs and they're unsure where the other money is coming from. So yes, it's appropriate and even encouraged in that scenario to be um, to be able to disclose that you've got alternative sources of funding. Okay, great. Um, and then I'm curious. So first of all, what what is the success rate of applying for a phase one grant? And then I'm gonna have a bunch of questions to follow on to that. Yes, good question. So the success rate for a phase one is anywhere between 10 and 20% when you first put an application through, but you will have an opportunity to resubmit if you don't get it the first time around. And resubmissions 
are a little different than your first time submission because often all we can control in the grant submission process is how you present your idea and making sure that the idea is compliant with policy. But the big mystery is who is going to review your grant application. And you never know what the own reviewers' opinions about what you're doing are going to be and how they're going to impact how they look at your grant application. So there are some strategic things you can do in advance to try to work that in your favor. You can do independent research to look up institutional funding priorities, scientific study section expertise. You can look up past review panels, and then you can request that your grant be routed towards the people you think are most likely to be excited about what you're doing. And we always recommend that. And we always help clients go through that process because the eyes reviewing your grant application make a huge difference in whether it's going to get funded or not funded. But in reality, the review process is still somewhat subjective and you have to wait and see what their opinions are on your work. So once you get the reviews back, you get a full summary statement with quantitative and qualitative feedback. So you get scores on each review criteria. That's more quantitative where they thought you ranked compared to others. And then qualitative, they're going to actually write out why they gave you that score. In a resubmission effort, you have a one-page opportunity to address the criticisms in your grant application by either arguing back, we try to minimize that, <laughs> but you can argue some back or clarify things that you think that they missed in your grant application. But more often than not, we want you to be receptive to criticism because that's what the funding agencies are looking for. And we want you to be receptive to criticism in a way that you're adjusting your grant to overcome their concerns in some way, whether that's adjusting an experiment slightly, adding a team member that adds expertise they were expecting to see, those kinds of adjustments. And then when you resubmit the grant application, you can try to go back to the same study section. Now you've already demystified the review process. You already know what they liked and didn't like about your application. So you can amp up the things that they like pair back or change the things that they didn't like, and then resubmissions have a 25 to 30% chance of getting funded. So more often than not, you're gonna get funded on a resubmission effort. And that's all for phase one. So when you go for phase two, after receiving a phase one application, your chances of winning a phase two jump up to between anywhere between 30 and 40%, which is a huge success rate for that amount of non-dilutive funding. And the reason why is if you've already received a phase one application, you've already been validated that the federal agency is interested in what you're doing. Now they just need to see that you can confidently execute on what you propose. So if you've received a phase one and then you submit a phase one report saying, look at all these milestones I set forth, I achieved them all or exceeded them. And if there's ever a scenario where you didn't achieve one or you pivoted, you simply need to explain now, when you're applying for a phase two, you know you like they like what you do. You're just proposing the next logical step. You've already proven yourself as a trustworthy grant awardee. You're much more likely to get that investment for phase two funding. So it's really high investment early on, but it could be a big payoff later. We always say the goal of a phase one is, is really to get that phase two because that's what makes a big difference. Okay. Can you apply for a phase two if you did not apply for a phase one? You can at the National Institutes of Health. So the NIH does have specialty grant mechanisms, and there are two specialty grant mechanisms. One would be going directly to phase two. 
And that is challenging because they, in theory, the NIH doesn't know who you are yet as an applicant. So you're already trying to overcome that barrier of they don't know who you are. They're not sure that they can trust you to execute on goals. And the way to overcome that is to come into the phase two with a lot of well-presented preliminary data. So you essentially need to include in a direct to phase two application an entire phase one. Show how you thoughtfully designed your proof of concept experiments. Show that you've proven out proof of concept in every way that you can. There shouldn't be a gap of proof of concept work left. Otherwise, they're going to ask you to go back to phase one and build out whatever proof of concept work is left to build out. But if you've done all of the proof of concept work, you weren't aware of this grant program, but now you're ready to take advantage and go directly to phase two, it's possible. Um, the success rate for that is anywhere between 18 and 22% historically. So it's not bad, um, but it, it is very competitive and you're going to need to come into it with a lot up front and just kind of expect to have that uphill battle, but it's certainly not an impossible battle to win. Uh, the NIH also has a fast track grant mechanism, and that would mean that you can apply for phase one and phase two at the same time. Generally, we don't recommend a fast track mechanism because it's a lot of work up front, and the success rate of that is between 15 and 18%, so really no better than your phase one going in at the start. So what you're losing is that success rate bump going from phase one to phase two because you're trying to do it all at once up front. And the only thing that you're gaining is there would be no administrative review period between phase one and phase two. So they would just be approved at once. So as soon as you finish phase one, you don't have to apply for phase two, you would go directly into phase two. Um, it's a huge drafting burden up front. So especially if you're going to hire out the work, it ends up being more expensive to put in. And again, that is successful. So it's very rare that I would recommend a fast track. The only scenarios that I would is if you had a conversation with the program officer at the NIH or NSF and program officers or program directors, they're the individuals that can hear your initial idea and let you know if their respective institute would be interested in receiving a grant application. And sometimes you can talk with them about the stage of your idea and they will recommend which mechanism you should pursue, whether it's phase one or phase two or fast track. In the rare scenario that they say fast track, that would be a more promising time to apply because you've kind of already been given the green light to, to pursue it. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. Um, who are these available to? Are there any restrictions? Is it just, is it U.S. citizens? Is it companies that are only based in the U.S. but could be, have, you know, officers or founders from, from, from other countries? Can you kind of walk through that? Mm-hmm. So to apply, you must be a small business set up for profit with less than 500 employees. And I always like to say the caveat that you can have far less than 500 employees. You can be a successful applicant as a single owner of a small business. So don't ever feel like you're too small, but that would be the upper end. Um, and then as far as ownership, it must be primarily U.S. owned. So 51% U.S. owned and primarily US operated. So it's not to say that you can't have foreign owners, it's not to say that you can't have foreign sites, but the majority of the business must be US owned and operated. And that's because at the end of the day, these are US federal tax dollars that taxpayers fund. 
for these grant applications. So they really want to make sure that they're investing in U.S. businesses that benefit the U.S. economy. Okay. Um, so I, I want to get into different parts of this submission um, of these grants, uh, maybe more specifically like common errors and tips. But 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 first of all, you know, just something I'm curious about when when you pitch to a angel investor, a venture capital group, um, private equity, whatever it might be, right? Dilutive funding. Um, the science is important, um, but arguably it's, it's a lot of the team um, mm -hmm. and it's a lot of, hey, how are we going to get our money back? Is there really a market for this? With the grants and, and the NH, NIH and NSF, how much of the, like, do you focus more on the science as opposed to the business case? Um, or, or can you talk about maybe about the logistics of that? Yes, I can. So in phase one, I would say the foundational science, the fundamentals of what you're doing are going to be more important than the commercial opportunity because they want to make sure that it's a sound and logical idea to get off of the ground and you have a really good technical plan and technical team doing so. In phase two, the importance of commercialization skyrockets because the point of phase two research and development is to bring you to the point of commercialization. So whereas in phase one, you might have a very scientifically sound idea and a plan to achieve proof of concept, and commercialization-wise, you don't need a full-fledged business plan at that point. You will need to speak to what the market opportunity is in broad terms and who your competitors may be and why you think that developing out your idea is going to have a competitive advantage. And of course, why you would overtake standard of care or shift some type of paradigm in the field that you're um, putting your innovation towards. But in phase two, and this gets into drafting requirements, you're not only talking about the research strategy of what you're doing, but you're also submitting an equal length commercialization plan. That's entirely about financial projections, market opportunity, competitor, team, company history, all of that. Um, so it becomes much more important by the time that you're applying for a phase two. And of course, it always benefits you to think ahead we always try to pepper into a phase one in the limited space that we have, essentially forward thinking, whether it's forward thinking to, yes, this is a small scale study, but we plan to do this in phase two so that you're showing them you have that long term vision or, you know, the market opportunity is this and our team has this experience in business and exits. You, you want to pepper in those items so that they know that you've got that vision because that's how you will kind of go down the pipeline from phase one to phase two successfully. Okay, awesome. So you brought it up, you have a limited amount of space. Can you talk through a little bit about just the outline of, of what goes into a grant? I mean, if, if it's as easy as, is there a page limit? Uh, I, I don't know, I've never done one of these, right? Mm -hmm. So I've only contributed. So I'm curious, um, yeah, what kind of goes into these page limits, other restrictions people need to be aware of? Mm -hmm. Arguably, the most important document of the grant application would be the research strategy. And the research strategy is going to contain three of the five major review criteria. And that would be the significance of your idea, the innovation behind your idea, and the approach in which you're going to pursue the project. 
Um, all of that needs to be contained into six single-spaced pages, including visuals and figures for a phase one. And in phase two, you have 12 single-spaced pages, including visuals, along with a 12-page commercialization plan. Um, so it is limited space and you do need to use it strategically. Generally, we recommend significance to be between one and two pages, but usually significance is the easiest to argue. It's easy to put numbers that are unarguable behind your impact. So what the indication is, how people suffer from that indi indication, why the standard of care falls short. It's usually easy and quick to make that argument in a really strong way. So you can do it in as little as a page and still make a big impact with that page. And that leaves you five pages in a phase one to go through the things that are going to be more nuanced and novel about what you're doing, which is innovation and approach. And that allows you a lot of time to expand upon why you're doing what you're doing, why it's novel, why it'll improve upon the standard, why it will stand alone in a competitive field. Uh, and again, kind of pepper in that market opportunity in the innovation section. And then in the approach, it'll be a lot about how you're actually designing the research of this project, what preliminary data you have that you're building upon, and then what timeline you expect to do the research in. And the approach section, I would say, is the most heavily scrutinized and technical. So that's always where you want subject matter input as much as possible. You, of course, aren't going to have the space to put in full protocols, but you're going to want to cite back to literature methods or standard protocols as much as possible just to inspire confidence in the reviewers that you do know what you're doing with as little words as possible. Um, so citing back is often a good strategy there to add in detail and robustness without adding in length. Um, visuals are also super important. So even though it's limited space, I always encourage a visual story as much as possible. Reviewers are busy people and they want to remember things quickly and quick reference visual storytelling is going to make a big impact in your grant application. So we always will spend time having that space as well. Now, the research strategy is six single-spaced pages. When you submit a grant application, it can be 60 to 80 pages in a phase one. And a phase two can be 80 to 120 pages, especially on that upper end if you have a clinical study because you're gonna need human subjects paperwork. So there are all of these ancillary documents involved that we kind of collectively call compliance documents as well as application forms that you fill in in their electronic submission portal. So you're drafting some aspects of a grant and you're filling out an application online for some aspects. And a lot of the more important compliance documents include biosketches, which is essentially the NIH and NSF's version of a CV or a resume. And you alluded to this earlier, team is everything. You might have a great idea, you might have a sound technical approach, but if you don't have the team to take it on confidently with expertise that allows you to execute on the proposed aims with high likelihood of success, you're not going to win that grant application. So arguably behind the research strategy, the next most important documents would be team member biosketches, really clearly trying to highlight and show off why they are the right people for the job, why they have collectively the right expertise for what they're doing, and the fact that they know their role in the project. That's what you're trying to communicate there. And each bio sketch can be between three and five pages. So you can see how that adds a lot of length in a grant proposal. 
if you have a team that's going to end up being between three, eight people, that adds up quickly. Um, after that, it's a lot of things like making sure that you're communicating the facilities and the resources that you have on hand, essentially that you have the environment necessary to execute on the proposed aims, and then a lot of basics about your business so that you're essentially communicating that you're meeting policy requirements um, and where the grant money should go and who it's going to, should it be awarded. Great. <clears throat> so um, you've kind of littered some throughout, but let's start with the most common errors. Um, and then I'd love, you know, a few of your, your, your biggest tips. And like I said, I think you've, you've, I've, I've written a few down, but you've, you've mentioned a few tips, uh, to go throughout, but, but let's start with the most common errors and, and then your, your tips for, for companies who are writing these. Yes. I've, I've kind of littered them throughout, but I think repetition is really important here, especially when it comes to errors and tips when preparing a grant application. So I think of errors in two ways. There are policy errors. So there are the most common policy requirements that people miss, which can be really devastating because everything else could be right. But if you're not within policy, you can't win that grant as you wrote it. Um, and then simply strategy errors. So common mistakes that people might make when putting together their grant application that just aren't smart grant strategy. Um, so when it comes to policy, I would say you want to make sure that you're staying within research and development, not commercialization. So federal grant funding can't go towards what they would consider commercialization activities. So it can't go to marketing, for example. It has to go to research. So making sure that you frame your project as research as much as possible is huge. And one way to do that is to have very clear, objective measurements of success. That's something that often gets critiqued, that at the end of your first aim in a grant application, you'll say, uh, product will be developed. But how do you prove out that you're going to have objective criteria of when it's go versus no-go time? They don't want you to be able to fake a grant application or move things forward based on subjective measurements that the team, which inherently has bias, gets to decide. They want to see as reviewers, do you have objective criteria? So if you're developing a device, what are the product specifications that you can write out that the device must meet in order to consider aim one, the development aim to be a success? And what are the functional criteria of your device that it must meet in order to deem aim one a success and move on to aim two? So a huge mistake people make is being too subjective in kind of the conclusion of their aim, where you want to make sure that it's framed as research as much as possible, which means as objective and measurable as possible. So we always try to dig in to the specifics with our clients to make sure that we're proposing something that reviewers like to see. Um, other policy errors would be uh, the way that you assemble your budget is pretty particular. It's broken up into direct and itemized costs. So those are the ones that you have to spell out and guesstimate how much you're about to spend on it in a project period. But then there is also an indirect rate. And I haven't mentioned that yet, but there you're allowed to build in facilities and administrative costs into a grant budget that are non-itemized and actually pretty fungible. So as a small business in NIH, you get up to 40% of the total award in indirect costs that you can just use to keep the lights on in your business, which is really nice. So another error I see, and this is kind of between policy and strategy, is people will have 
a $400,000 budget and they want to itemize every dollar when it's maybe not in your best interest as a business to do so. It's best to keep as many non-itemized costs as possible in those grant funds so you have as much flexibility as possible to use those dollars the way that you need to as a business. And then when it comes to direct costs, you can actually bucket them into pretty large categories, one of which that people often underfill is the personnel category because personnel is a very predictable itemized cost. So it's one that you don't need to worry about, am I or am I not gonna be at the point in my business that I'm spending dollars on this? You definitely will be spending dollars on your company personnel. And the NIH and NSF actually like to see grant funds invested in effort because it shows that you don't just have these kind of namesakes as team members. There are people that are being paid to put effort forth into this business and proposal and that's going to contribute to the likelihood of success. So those are two things. And then um, always look for those budget exemptions. Always make sure that you're routing to the study section and institute that you think are gonna be most excited about what you're doing. Do that homework, not everybody does. And you don't want to be at the whim of a random administrative personnel trying to route your, your science to the right scientific people. You're gonna know your science better than they will. So take that time. And then my biggest tip would be start early and apply often when it comes to grant funding. Something that we haven't talked about yet is the fact that there is a delay between submission and award. And that delay is on the order of six to seven months. So we submit your grant application and best case scenario, if you win it the first time through, your project period still isn't going to start until six months after you submit. Um, so make sure that you're starting this process as early as possible building in the fact that you might need to apply often, you might need to resubmit, you might need to pivot an idea, and you wanna make sure that you're applying as early as possible so that the funding comes through when you can actually utilize it as a company. And that's another trick to building out your budget so that it's on personnel, because you're always going to be spending money on personnel as a company and building in those facilities and administrative costs. It just allows a lot more flexibility. Um, one thing I want to say on the six month delay is there is a policy that not a lot of people know about where you can backdate grant expenses by 90 days. So that is nice. If you know that you're going to receive an award, maybe you've already spent money towards what you proposed, you are allowed to backdate expenses and even finish projects early if things were just moving faster than you anticipated. That rarely reflects negatively on an applicant because they like to see people achieving their goals. So if you finish early, that's okay. You can backdate expenses, kind of move up your project end date and move on to phase two faster. Okay. And, and so from award to money in the bank account of a startup, what is, what does that time frame look like? So once you receive the notice of award, which is the official notice that you are going to be awarded the grant money, that notice will contain the project start date. And it's usually very close to when you're receiving the notice of award. So all of the administrative lag happens when you submit the grant application. Usually it's going to take a month or two to receive your initial score from reviewers. And then another month after that, before you receive the written feedback, which is actually actionable items. Um, and then after the scientific review, all the best scoring grant applications move on to advisory council review. And that second level of review is really where all the best scoring meritorious grant applications get considered not only for scientific merit, 
but also alignment with funding priorities and portfolio goals of that institute. So there's kind of an administrative uh, review after that. And then all the grants that are selected at advisory council then move forward where they're going to ask for what they would call just-in-time information. So if you're moving along in the process and you're getting all these cues that your grant is likely to get awarded, a big cue that your grant is likely to get awarded is requests for just-in-time, where they really want to see the paperwork proof that you do meet requirements to receive funding because they're essentially setting everything up to move forward with giving you the award. Um, they might also use the just-in-time moment to clarify any remaining concerns from reviewers that are a barrier to funding. So you get one more opportunity to say, oh yes, let me clarify, this won't be a problem because of X, Y, and Z. And again, it just clears your route to award. Once you go through all of that, which is the process that takes six to seven months, then the notice of award and actual award money follows soon after. Wow. Um, so I, I did not know, candidly, a lot about the grant process um, heading into this, and I feel like I learned a ton. Yeah. Um, I did it just I just looked down at the clock to, to see that we're, we're 45 minutes into our discussion. Is there anything else before we wrap things up? Is there anything else that is is key that you wanted to highlight on? I would just say, don't let intimidation in the grant process stop you from trying to apply. There are businesses that you can hire out to do this work for you and kind of overcome that barrier to entry of policy knowledge and how to draft everything in the right format. My company is available for that purpose. And I think it's actually nice to have someone who is a third party write up your story because it makes sure that you're not too close to the research to communicate it effectively to reviewers who may not be subject matter experts in what you're doing. Um, so don't be scared to look for outside help when it comes to applying for grant applications. It's a huge opportunity, but also, the downside of free money is that it takes a while to get, and it's a huge time investment upfront. So consider having other people put in that time investment for you, make sure that everything is as perfectly presented as possible to really increase your chances to award and give you that opportunity to apply early where your hours and effort could be better spent elsewhere within your business. Um, but it is an incredible opportunity. And for most businesses, it's worth applying. If NIH and NSF aren't the right fit for you, the DOD also has opportunities. The Department of Energy also has opportunities. So there are a lot of sectors and your research is going to be appealing to someone. So talk to us, talk to a program director, have those conversations and really see who might be interested in helping you secure this non-dilutive seed funding. Yeah, that's great advice. Um, and so for those who are listening, depending on the platform, up or down an inch, um, and we will have Ashley's LinkedIn page uh, linked in there, and then also Superior Medical Experts website. Um, so so if, you, if you want to ask more questions or connect with Ashley, feel free to do so. Um, with that being said, Ashley, so much, thank you so much for your time. Uh, hang on for one minute, we'll chat offline, but, but thanks for doing this and, and thanks for teaching us about the, the wonderful world of non-dilutive funding. Yes, I hope it wasn't too dry, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at 
Thanks for listening and have a great day.